there was a study on doctor visits to over 700 patients with symptoms of the cold or flu. And they participated in, it was called a care study, consultation and relational empathy. And they secretly had to give the doctor a score between zero and 10 on the empathy that they showed during that visit. And those who scored the doctor a perfect 10 out of 10, their immune response to the same condition was 50% higher than everyone else. And it just came down to empathy, how it made them feel. And what you're seeing is how you feel then is physically affecting your, the function of the immune system. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee, GP, television presenter and author of the best-selling books, The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome back to episode 104 of my Feel Better Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. Now, I hope you caught the bonus episode that I released this past week on how to manage anxiety in the face of a global pandemic. The feedback to this bonus episode has been phenomenal and many of you are finding the practical tips on that podcast super helpful in managing your anxiety and stress levels at the moment. So if you've not heard it yet, please do try and have a listen later this week. And of course, do share it with other people in your network who you feel may benefit from the information. So this week's conversation is all about the incredible benefits of kindness. The world is changing, people are feeling scared, and what we regard as normal has been completely flipped on its head. What we need now more than ever is kindness, and this episode today will explain exactly why that is. When you're kind to someone, it's not just that person who benefits. Kindness makes you yourself happier, it's good for your heart, it helps support your immune system, it slows aging, it improves relationships, and it's contagious. Any small act of kindness that you might perform is proven to have a ripple effect that reaches over 100 more people. Now, I can't think of a better message to put out there in these unique and uncertain times. My guest on this week's show is David Hamilton. David is a pharmacist turned author with a special interest in how the mind affects the body and vice versa. In this week's conversation, we chat about his fascination with the placebo effect and the many studies that demonstrate how the brain actually changes and the body heals in response to certain information. We talk at length about oxytocin, which David calls the kindness hormone, and how it's the main contributor to our heart's health outside exercise. And David also explains why kindness is the opposite of and the antidote to stress. So if you're feeling powerless, or that any efforts you make at the moment are insignificant, I really hope that listening to this podcast will help. It was recorded back in February, before the scale of this pandemic could be known, and yet it feels timely to release it now, as a reminder of what is within our control 
when so many other factors aren't. Now, before we get started, I do need to give a quick shout out to some of the sponsors who are essential in order for me to put out regular episodes like this one. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. Now, Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I have come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. As you may know, I prefer that people get all of their nutrition from food, but I do recognize that for some of us, this is not always possible. So if you're looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. David, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited. I, I'm excited <laughs> to talk to you. It's, um, you know, we've had a few back and forths trying to get yeah, this yeah. sorted. And then, uh, you know, we, we figured this out, what, 48 hours ago? Pretty much, yeah. Less than that, I think. Less than that, yeah. It was a case <laughs> yeah. of, hey, you're going to be at Life Lessons. I'm yeah. going to be at Life Lessons yeah. on Saturday. So we're um, both so prepared for this, as you can tell. Well, look, I'm hoping that as we catch up and yeah. I inquire about your work, which frankly I've been super fascinated with for a long time, uh, hopefully the listeners will also get carried along with that curiosity. Nice. Certainly that's my hope. Oh, mine too. Good. Fantastic. So you've come down from... Dunblane, central Scotland, uh, famous latterly for Andy Murray and Jamie Murray, the tennis players, and obviously for the school shooting several years ago. Yeah. Really lovely, lovely place, Dunblane. You know, I took up tennis when I moved there in my mid 40s. I'd never played tennis before. So because of the Murray brothers? Because of the Murray brothers. See, it's frowned upon if you don't, if you're fit and healthy and you don't play tennis, it's kind of frowned upon. <laughs> so well, that's amazing, a, isn't it? Yeah. I picked up a racket for the first time in my mid 40s and I was awful. You and know, now? Well, I'm working up through the leagues. I've been doing a lot of mental exercises, visualization, a lot of training and stuff. So I, I love it. You know, play, oh, fantastic. play three, four times That's a week. That's so interesting that this small town, yeah, yeah. Dunblane, uh, I wonder if we compare the tennis participation rates in Dunblane, you know, the home of Andy and Jamie Murray, mm. or certainly the former home of them, mm. uh, with the rest of the United Kingdom. I, I wonder <laughs> if, if it's artificially skewed upwards. Probably, definitely. You know, it, it's a really thriving tennis community. Yeah. I love it. yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, you mentioned a couple of things there, uh, which we'll probably come to mm. later on. Um, but, David, I think I'm really fascinated by your journey. Mm. So you started working in the pharmaceutical industry yeah. and now you don't. Yeah. Right. So why don't you start by saying what you do now and then sort of share a bit of that story. What happened and how did you end up here today? Yeah. So well, I, I basically write books on that really broadly cover the different ways that your mind and emotions and your behavior has physical effects, you know, health giving effects on the body. So I've written a, a series of books on it. I give a lot of talks on it. And it really, my interest in that, in fact, if I wind back even further, my interest in the pharmaceutical industry was the placebo effect, but the interest in that actually was born when I was, a, when I was about 11 years old. My mum had postnatal depression and she was suffering 
terribly and it, and it wasn't really understood this was in the mid 70s after my youngest sister was born I've got three sisters my youngest sister was born in mid 1976 postnatal depression was not well understood at the time and my mum uh, didn't really get the right treatment in fact the 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 psychiatrist she was sent to to see said give yourself a shake but asking a woman with postnatal depression to give herself a shake uh, is like asking someone with a broken leg to run it off, I suppose. And my mum really, it, it really shattered her self-esteem and she start, she would feel really low about herself and like she's just not a strong person. And, and she, so she suffered terribly for a few years. And as a young child, I could tell my mum was struggling and I didn't really know what was wrong. And I remember one day I'd only just started secondary school and this might sound really corny, right? I don't know if I bumped my bag off the, off the shelf, but a book fell off the shelf and it was called The Magic Power of Your Mind. And I'm just 11 years old. Magic Power of Your Mind, Walter Germain. And I thought, I've got, I bet that can help my mum. So I just took it, I put it in my bag and I didn't know you're supposed to join a library, <laughs> you know, get the little <laughs> yellow card stamp. But it, it totally helped my mum. It didn't, you know, cure depression in a day, but it gave her tools and strategies like what we now call mindfulness. It gave her those kind of things that helped her navigate a course through the difficult times. So as I grew up in my teenage years, my mum would often use affirmations and she would do meditation and she was, she'd say things like, I can do it. It's all in the mind, mind over matter. So having these conversations with my mum, it's no surprise that my interest started was became the power of the mind and what your mind can do and the, the effect your mind has on your body. So when I ended up working in the pharmaceutical industry, developing drugs for cardiovascular disease and cancer, most of my colleagues would be celebrating when you hear that one of the drugs that we've participated in is working. But I, I was so fascinated with how many people were improving on placebos. And it was so interesting to me. And I think because my mum had learned about mental strategies that could help her a little bit and navigate that course through some of those difficult days. So that was my, so I was so fascinated after four years of really my own many research projects, just reading and learning everything I could, I decided to resign because I th my passion then was to educate people on, to write and to speak, to educate on how we can harness this overall effect you know, to, to improve our health and to, you know, make life a little bit better for us. Yeah. I mean, thanks for sharing that. It, it is a fascinating story. When your mum was unwell mm. and you brought home that book uh, about the power of the mind, yeah. you know, how old were you and what were you interested in at school at that time? I was 11 years old. My I just started secondary school. So I'd, but my main, my, my passion, I guess, at school, if you could call it a passion when you're 11, was mathematics. And so when I went to high school, it was maths and science was my big things. I, yeah. I really, I, I use the word, I hated English. And it's funny, you know, if someone had said to me as a child, you will write lots of books one day, I'd have laughed at them. You know, me writing books? Because it was just maths and science is yeah. all I was interested in. Well, that's, that's interesting because you picked up that book for your mum at the age of 11. Hmm. Now... Look, my kids aren't yet 11. My, my, my son's nine. Mm. And I'm sort of going to guess that 11 is still at that age where still naive enough yeah. to kind of believe in stuff yeah, and yeah. Um, have faith, let's say. And I'm just wondering, you know, as you got through your education and, you know, studied science more and more to a higher and higher degree, 
Uh, did you ever start to get skeptical about the importance of the mind? Because it's not really something we're taught at school. It's not something we're taught in science. Yeah. It's not something we're taught at medical school. No. And a lot of your work now is showing the beautiful science that actually exists around kindness, around the placebo, around the power of the mind. So I'm super fascinating. Mm. Did you go through this period of skepticism somewhere and then come out the other side? Or what happened? Uh, surprisingly, not so much. What I would say is I just forgot about it. Yeah. You know, you get so, I mean, I, I, I got so engrossed in my, my degree. You know, I did chemistry, then my PhD was organic chemistry, and you get so engrossed in it that I actually just forgot, really. I remember reading uh, Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, when I was halfway through my PhD, and it almost reminded me of the passion I had. And I remember, you know, I was literally... In the middle, in my second, middle of my second year of my PhD, and all of a sudden, ignited reading this book, ignited my passion. It was the memory I had of, I'm so interested in, and in, in you know, at the time the book was just about positive thinking, but it wasn't just about positive thinking. My, I, I, I looked at that as not just about positive thinking that I'll say positive things and positive things happen. It was more about the attitude that you were bringing to situations to change how you felt about something. And that's the message I got. And I thought, this, this is what I love. And, and so during my PhD, I started to really dream, daydream, I suppose, that one day I would write a book about the mind. And I had no idea what I would write about me, right? I mean, even at the time, the idea of writing, but it just seemed like something I knew I had to do one day. So you're working for a pharmaceutical company. You're there with your team, with your colleagues, trying to develop drugs mm. that have been designed to help people. You know, you said something about the placebo effect, which I find super interesting. So, um, you know, for people who are not familiar, um, the way we often analyze drugs is we do something called a randomized control trial. So, you know, very, very crudely speaking, you take two groups of people, um, you know, let's say there's 200 people there and you're testing a drug for blood pressure and 100 people get the drug for blood pressure, 100 people don't. They get just a sugar pill, is that right? Yep. And then you see who has, um, you know, has there been a statistically significant uh, increase or, or benefit in one of the groups, i.e. the group who's taking the drug, ideally, I mm -hmm. guess, if, if that's what you're studying. Yeah. And it's done because often placebo has been, certainly my interpretation of this uh, as a medic is that, oh, if it's just the same as placebo, then the drug doesn't work, mm -hmm. is the very simplistic explanation. And if it's beyond that, to a certain degree, we're like, okay, this drug actually works. It's beyond the kind of placebo thing, yeah, right? Yeah. In, in, in almost a derogatory way. Mm. But nonetheless, if you think about it, even if in that hundreds, let's say that group who don't get the drug, a hundred people who've got blood pressure or high blood pressure, if 10 of them get better on taking the placebo and 20 get better on taking the pharmaceutical drug, well, the placebo is still doing something, right? Yeah. And is that what... Is that what happened with you? You thought, hold on a minute. Well, how can we explain that? Pretty much, and and seen it because because I was a chemist so close to building the the drug. I mean, literally, organic chemists like me. It's like adults who play with Lego blocks. 
But instead of using uh, taking Lego blocks of different shapes and sizes and assembling them into shapes, we take building blocks of different shapes and sizes called atoms. But the principle is the same, sticking them together. So I was so close to the actual the chemistry of it. And I just found it so fascinating that large numbers of people were improving on the placebos. And I remember asking my colleagues and they would just dismiss it. Oh, it's just a placebo. Just the placebo. And it was a sweeping movement of the right hand, even left hand. It just... I think you learn it on your first day, it's just a placebo effect. And I came to realise that nobody actually understood it at all. They had no idea how it really worked. So that's why, out of curiosity, I, I wanted to understand what happens. And now we actually understand that for a number of different conditions, when a person believes they're receiving a drug, the brain produces its own natural substances to deliver what they expect. So for example, if someone takes a, a, a painkiller, a placebo, but they think it's a painkiller, then, and it works, depending, it can work really, really well, depending on the language or empathy used by the person who suggested they take it. But what the reason why it works isn't just, as my colleague said, it's it's not really, they're not getting better. They just think they're getting better. But in actual fact, believing that this is a drug caused their brain to produce natural versions of morphine. So morphine's an opiate. We have our natural versions and they're called endogenous opiates, meaning they're endogenous to you. They belong to you. So the brain produces endogenous opiates because you believe something. So the, pain, the reduction in pain, for example, isn't just all in the mind. It's a real physical change caused by real chemical changes in the brain produced by what you expect is supposed to happen when you take this little pill. And it was that type of thing, realizing there's a scientific basis for belief, and it, it was building the evidence and yeah, I spent hours in the library in the, in the company just researching, gathering all the papers I could find. And it was just so interesting. And I thought, no one really knows about this. Professionals, lay people don't really understand. Did, did, did we almost not want to know about it because it didn't fit our societal narrative that we're trying to find new and better technologies, whether it's a drug, whether it's another treatment, that's going to help. But it can't just be the power of positive thinking, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I guess you, you find what you're looking for, right? So if people aren't looking for that, it's easy to, you know, diminish it and just think you know, it doesn't matter. And I, I've got to say, you know, I think still as a medical profession, I don't think we take the placebo seriously enough. And mm. I mean, what do you think? You know, do you think things have changed in the last 10, 20 years? It's definitely changing. I think when I, I left the pharmaceutical industry, you know, back in 1999, so just over 20 years ago, and it's definitely changing. People are far more aware of it, or of the way in which even the way you talk to someone, how that can make them feel. In fact, there was a study on, on doctor visits to over 700 patients with symptoms of the cold or flu and they were they participated in it was a, called a care study consultation and relational empathy and they secretly had to give the 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 doctor a score between 0 and 10 on the empathy that they showed for during that that visit and those who scored the doctor a perfect 10 out of 10 their immune response to the same condition was 50% higher than everyone else and, just, it, and it just came down to empathy yeah, how it made them feel. And what you're seeing is how how you feel then is physically affecting your, the function of the immune system. I think that's the key, isn't it? That it's it's not just in your head. It's changing things biologically, physiologically. Absolutely. Uh, David, when I hear that, it reminds me of something that 
I often say, I've said it, you know, to the public before I've said it when I, when I teach doctors, um, that the number one skill for any healthcare professional for me is their ability to connect. Absolutely. And then secondly to that, communicate with the person in front of them. For me, totally. that trumps knowledge yep. any day of the week. And I've just seen that time and time again. And that sort of fits in with what you're saying, right? That if it's empathy, it's empathy. If you feel as a human being, if you feel heard, if you feel listened. Absolutely. It, it does something, you know, A, you're more receptive to hearing what comes next. Mm. So I would say it's connection first, education second. Yeah. Because when you've connected with them and they feel heard by you, they're open to listening to what you have to say. Absolutely. Whereas if you just go charging in and say, look, you need to lose weight and get to the gym a bit more. You know what? You know, this is why a lot of people say, oh, doctor, patients don't do what we ask them to do. Yeah. Well, I think the reason they don't ask, they don't do what we ask them to do as a profession is because a lot of the time we're not communicating it in a way that makes sense to them and, and, and actually deeply connects with them. I know. And it's, it's that deep connection has tremendous physical effects. In, in fact, one of the, one of the, the side effects, I suppose, of feel that feeling connected or feeling good about it is affectionately known as the Mother Teresa effect. I think it was a study, I think it was at Yale or one of the other big American universities, they got a, over 100 people to watch a video, of a 50-minute video of Mother Teresa on the streets of Calcutta a, demonstrating care and compassion to, a, to homeless people. And at the end of the study their levels of a little immune antibody in the saliva called SIGA went up by about 50% for no reason other than just watching the video. And it stayed elevated for an hour or two afterwards. And that's because for the hour or two afterwards, they were still talking about, didn't, remember that part when Mother Teresa, she sat down beside that old, really elderly gent and they didn't say a word. She just sat beside him. She took his hand and laid her head against his shoulder just so that he wouldn't feel alone at that time. And just that emotional bonding experience of watching them on that video spiked the immune system. It just lifted that little antibody level. So, so it's not just the person who received that, it's also if you're watching Absolutely. that. Absolutely, it's watching it as well. Because it comes down to how it makes you feel. If you can feel a sense of connection from being the person who, for, in this case, is delivering kindness or compassion, being on the receiving end or watching someone else, whether it's live or even on a video, it has more or less the same effect. Uh, and I guess, you know, that could be why... You know, if you watch a really good film that really moves you and connects you and you feel like crying or you feel like you're really Absolutely. connected with it. Yeah. I don't know if that's been studied, but I wouldn't it be... Has actually, has it has, actually. Has it? There was a, a clip of, of Oprah Winfrey during the time of the Oprah show and she was, she, I, I forget the exact nature of the clip, but she was really changing people's lives and it was something to do with a school teacher in a class and what people watching it were moved to tears and felt so uplifted and it produced high levels of what I call the kindness hormone, oxytocin. It's also called the bonding hormone, the hugging, the cuddle chemical. But it produced high levels of that simply by feeling and moved and inspired by watching a, a, like a five-minute clip from, from what used to be the Oprah Winfrey yeah. show. Yeah, I mean, it's really incredible. And this is right up my street, honestly. Mm. This is... Um, 
This is becoming clearer and clearer to me as every year passes since I qualify for medical school and I and I gain more experience and more experience to see more patients. This, for me, is the missing link in healthcare, um, that not everything can be quantified with just blood results and test results and just, oh, do this, do that. There's just something deeper. Um, and that that is something that... For me, it's what it means to be a human being because mm. whether we're a patient or, you know, we're, we're not a patient, we're, we're all humans and there are some fundamental truths. For humans, mm. we're social beings. We like to be connected with others. Mm. What you said about secretory or SIGA is so interesting to me. Um, I, I've also studied immunology and mm. for people wondering what SIGA is, um, we all know about the immune system, which helps, you know, fight off infections and viruses and bacteria and all kinds of things. And... Uh, a lot of your immune system, maybe 70% or so of the immune system activity is in and around your gut, uh, which is super interesting. Mm. Um, and that's called your mucosal immune system. And the primary, the, the main sort of defense molecule of that is SRGA, secretory RGA. So to, to think that that can go mm. up with this kind of Watching compassion. It, compassion being practiced. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Are there, there are studies, aren't there, about... Uh, recovering quicker from colds, I think, and the flu. When yeah. what was something to do with compassion? Yeah, I, the, I think there's some research looking at the more compassion that, let's say, a, a doctor feels for as part of this relational empathy study, that the people who had scored the doctor the highest, in other words, the interpretation of that is they felt listened to, and they felt connected and more you know, warm and connected with, with the doctor, their recovery rate was about 50% faster than everyone else. It really just came down to how much empathy, how much of a connection was initiated by the doctor. I mean, that's incredible. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. They recovered 50% faster compared to people who, when, when there was no, or there wasn't enough contact and, and connection in the, in the, the in, during the consultation. Yeah, I find, I find the idea that it's not just, the giver, but the receiver or the watcher also gets a biochemical change. And um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with someone called Professor Francis McGlone. No. Uh, I interviewed him on the podcast about a year ago. Uh, he helped me actually write uh, the chapter on touch in my second book, yeah. The Stress Solution. He's, he's one of the world's leading researchers in touch, basically. Oh, lovely. And he's done some incredible, you, you should check it out actually, because it's completely aligned mm. with a lot of the work that you do. Oh, cool. um, and he talks about, you know, these two different kinds of touch nerve fibers. You've got one, which is the fast one, which simply tells you where you've been touched. Mm. You, know, you know, if I yeah. touch you on your forearm, you know, you oh, feel it, yeah. wrong has just touched me on my forearm. But if you stroke someone on the forearm, it does something completely different. Absolutely. And well, I mean, his his work has shown that it's a different kind of nerve fiber. It's called the the CT afferent that goes up to the a different part of the brain, the emotional brain. And when yeah. you when you get that stroked, oxytocin levels go up, mm. blood pressure goes down, Absolutely. heart rate goes down, yeah. natural killer cells, which are part of your immune system, go up. Amazing, I think, fifty to seventy percent. Yeah. So. We're seeing a, a similarity, but also that most of those uh, C-tactile afferent nerve fibers, so that that slower nerve fiber that tells, that gives you that nice, warm, mm. cuddly feeling, mm. most of them are on your upper back and your shoulder. Is that right? Yeah. So what's fascinating about wow. that is, is that why would evolution put something like that on a very hard to access place? Well, his view and my view is that, well, 
it must have been there to promote that sort of social connection. So you would have to be with someone to stroke you there. And so the touch giver, you know, gets just as many benefits as the touch receiver. People Mm. who've got a uh, pet, you know, stroking your pet makes you feel good, but it also makes your pet feel good. But Mm. this is not just in your head, oh, it feels good, right? As you're showing, and as uh, Francis McGlone has shown, it changes things biochemically. Mm. And for me, it's fascinating. It's the same hormone, oxytocin. So, you know, I mean, what do you make of that? See, see, actually, you you mentioned the animal thing. I I love animals. I lost my dog a few years ago. He had bone cancer. He was only two years old as well. And so I'd started looking at the links between bonding with animals and oxytocin. And one of my favourite statistics uh, that I got out of that research is the chances of a second heart attack within 12 months and someone who's had one already, if they have a dog, is 400% less. And it's not just through the exercise, it's through a lot of it. Some of it is through the, the oxytocin generated through the bonding. Front page of science, you know, one of the top ranked science journals in the world. Front page, uh, about 10 years ago, picture of a yellow Labrador. And in the study, they compared people with a good relationship with dogs versus people with a not so good relationship. The way they quantified it is they videoed them. And they watched them interacting with the dogs. And if someone made frequent eye contact and sustained the eye contact for a few seconds, they were called long gazers. So they were defined as good relationships. If they made eye contact less frequently and not quite as long, then they were called short gazers. So not as good relationships. So after 30 minutes of interacting, amazingly, oxytocin levels had increased by about 350% in the human and nearly doubled in the dog for doing nothing. Nothing other than warm, playful interactions, rubbing the tummy, just warm interactions. You get the same thing with humans. But it, w- the reason I mentioned it is because you mentioned dogs there, and I love animals. And uh, and, and amazingly, uh, and that, I believe, is one of the main reasons, the main contributors outside of exercise to the cardiovascular benefits, because oxytocin has tremendous cardiovascular benefits. Well, well let's expand on that, because that is a novel concept for people that... Um, the sort of things you're talking about, uh, human touch, connection, mm. uh, stroking, you know, all, all these kind of, I guess, what we would call the softer yeah. components of health. You're saying alongside physical exercise, physical activity is the most important thing for your cardiovascular health. I don't think many people would be familiar yeah. with that as an idea. Yeah, just, just warmth and connection because they produce oxytocin. So you can you can create that sense through generosity and kindness, compassion, empathy, all of anything that generates that sense of warmth and connection, we, we know produces oxytocin. But what's interesting is all the research showing the physiological effects of, I call it the kindness hormone, really to distinguish between Stress hormones, because physiologically, in many ways, it, kindness is the opposite of stress in terms of how it makes you feel. I mean, if you ask anyone, what's the opposite of stress? Most people say, oh, it's peace or it's calm. But that's not technically the opposite of stress. That's the absence of stress. Physiologically speaking, if you look at the physical effects of stress and you look at the physical effects of the feeling that you get through kindness, which is warmth and connection, then they're physiologically opposite. Even psychologically, there's some studies showing that, you know, emotionally we get the opposite effects. Because many of this, the physical effects of stress are not because of a situation, but because of how you feel 
when you're in that situation because two people could be stuck in traffic and one person's feeling stressed and they're producing adrenaline and cortisol the other person's feeling relaxed they're not producing much at all so it's not necessarily the traffic it's how you feel so if the feelings of stress generate stress hormones but when you be kind and those feelings you get of warmth and connection they generate oxytocin I call this them I call it a kindness hormone to make that distinction that it's a physical it's a hormone that gets produced because of how you're feeling in that moment which you initiate through empathy compassion touch emotional warmth any 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 of these soft behaviors and and understanding this explains a, a large body of research that we knew the, the trend in the past, but we didn't know why it worked that way. For example, why people with better quality relationships have better cardiovascular systems, why things like hostility and aggression is correlated with higher levels of hardening of the arteries. We didn't know why that is, but now the evidence seems to suggest that, you know, aggression and hostility, for example, reduce levels of the kindness hormone oxytocin and therefore we, we take away a vital part of cardio protection because oxytocin is now, def now called a cardio protective hormone meaning it protects the cardiovascular system one of the ways it does it is to, to reduce blood pressure so so I, I love explaining it in that sense that it's physically the opposite of stress because of how it makes you feel yeah. so you can feel that way through being the giver being the receiver or being the person who's watching a nice moment taking place yeah, David, my, my mind is blown. This is, um, yeah, this is so fascinating. So fascinating. And I'm drawing all kinds of connections in my head over things that I've been talking about for years, things I've noticed with patients. And this is filling in a few more gaps and it's all starting to knit together. Um, you know, you may have seen the study, I think it was published three or four years ago, which suggested that the feeling of being lonely is as harmful as smoking 15 Absolutely. cigarettes yeah. a day. Incredible! It's incredible. But then when you try and make the case that uh, oxytocin might be the cardioprotective hormone, then suddenly it's all starting to, to make sense. But I guess we have, to, we have to look at things on an evolutionary or through an evolutionary mm. lens, really, yeah. to try and figure this out right. Like I said, you know, why would evolution put these touch receptors on our back? Well, to promote social contact, you would think. It's nature rewarding you, saying, yes, more of this, please. I will make you healthy. Keep doing that. Yeah. yeah. In fact, you know, the, the, the gene for oxytocin, uh, the, the oxytocin receptor gene, actually, it's one of the oldest in the human genome. It's about 500 million years old and, and four days. No, I'm not four days. <laughs> yeah, it's five hundred, about five hundred. <laughs> crap joke. Apologies to the listeners. I couldn't resist it. But uh, but five hundred million years old. What that say that tells you is it's vital for the survival of all species. I mean, all, yeah. all warm-blooded species have an oxytocin or a oxytocin similar system. In humans, it's integrated itself during those hundreds of millions of years into almost all important, meaningful systems in the body. Even the growth of heart muscle cells in children. If children children are loved and cared for, then as well as that producing human growth hormone, it also produces oxytocin, which helps to facilitate the growth of heart muscle cells, neurons, kidney cells, liver cells, skin cells. And that's why children who are deprived of love and affection, they, they end up, I guess psychologists, I think they call it psychosocial dwarfism, they end up a lot smaller than their genetic potential because levels of growth hormone and oxytocin are suppressed through the lack of love and compassion and yeah, care. Absolutely. And then there's the study with the Romanian orphanages, orphanages where, where kids 
you know, were fed and watered, but they didn't get touch. Yeah. And the ones who didn't get any any touch have got higher incidence as they're older, autoimmune problems, Absolutely. behavioral problems. And yeah. it it all marries up that we're a social species. We are, you know, um, we, we, we've evolved to be connected to each other, but now we're frankly more connected to our devices <laughs> I know. than we are to other humans. Um, so if you show your smartphone compassion and you touch your <laughs> smartphone, uh, does it also release oxytocin? Well, do you know, I, I, you made me think there. I, 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 was, saw, I was joking, but, no, but unless no, you're going to pull out a research no, study. No, I wasn't. I was going to pull out the film Castaway with Tom Hanks. Okay. And I, I you know, remember, was it Wilson? He called that, was it a coconut or a football? He called it Wilson? I have not seen it, actually. All right, well, years ago, Castaway... But, but Gareth is videoing this in the background, nodding his head, yeah, furiously. So, so, so. so Tom Hanks, Castaway, was on a desert island for years, and he made a connection. I'm sure it was an old burst football or a coconut or something, but he made it into something that he bonded about and he spoke to it as if it was a person. He gave it a face and hair and he called it Wilson. And he cared so much for it that one day when it got swept to sea, he was devastated. It was grief. It was loss. And I think... If you can bond, even with, you know, make a joke of it, hugging a tree, it doesn't matter. If you can bond with, even in that case, an inanimate object, it doesn't matter. It, it's as long as you feel, I'm making light, obviously, you're not going to bond with a smartphone, but in general, if you can, like a child bonding with a doll, for example, yeah. with a, with a, you know, a teddy bear, it, something that you feel you can bond with, it's that bonding itself yeah. that releases the oxygen. So we're wired to bond and to connect. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, the idea of a child with their teddy uh, or even this film, an inanimate object. Yeah. Um, and, and again, yeah, I, it, what started out as a slight joke, actually, if you think about it, well, Technically, you probably could bond with your smartphone if you gave it that kind of deep love, care, and, and affection. But I guess we're not doing that, yeah. are we? And That's the, idea, the point. And the idea of even saying that, most people laugh at that because we, all, we <laughs> use our smartphones. But let's say you were to paint a wee smiley face on it uh, and and maybe something happened to you that, you know, the, the only thing you had was a smartphone and you just made a connect. Maybe that, that was your way of communicating with the world and you were all alone. All of a sudden you would have a connection with the smartphone that's different from just sitting on the tube and ticking, yeah. looking at your emails. So, so I guess in some ways, well, in many ways, yes, we're talking about connection, but we're talking also about intentional living. And we're talking about being present and being mindful because that's really what that connection is, isn't it? If yeah. you're sort of um, building up that relationship with another person or another object or a teddy, you're intentionally doing it, maybe speaking to it before you Absolutely. go to bed. You're, and, and as you said before, it's about the feeling that changes inside you that actually leads to a lot of those biochemical changes. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it's the, you know, I, I, I often suggest to people that, make kindness a practice practice thinking kind thoughts about people you know if you find yourself about to say something about someone stop for a minute and even just make an attempt you know not going to do it all the time but some of the times make an attempt to think i wonder if that person's struggling in their life right now i know i'm talking about their behavior yesterday but i wonder if they're struggling right now you never know i wonder if that that man or woman is a good parent i wonder what their relationship was with their parents and just change the dialogue. And what that does, it introduces empathy and it introduces a different way of thinking. And not 
always successful, but oftentimes it will make you feel a little bit more kind towards the person. I think if we develop little practices, then kindness becomes a habit so that it's the go-to, it's the first thought is the compassionate thought, the kind thought. And then the way in which you speak to people, the way in which you interact with people becomes more gentle and more warm because it becomes a habit. And that, I think, becomes your way. And I'm speaking from experience here because I I have completely changed as a person in the and during the time that I've been really working on the mind-body connection, but particularly when I've been focused on kindness. I, mean, I wasn't not, I wasn't, I wasn't meaning as a horrible person, but relative, I have made large gains, I guess, in the, I guess the quality of person that I've become. And I've become gentler, more compassionate, more kind. I cry a lot more. I don't know if that's related to it, but I'm much softer than I was maybe 10 years ago. And and it's a consequence of my awareness of what kindness and compassion is and, and what it does for us. Yeah, you, you you can cultivate this uh, as a feeling, as a practice, um, and I think for many of us, we we sort of feel that I'm just not a kind person, or you know that's not me, and it almost feels a little bit forced. But I think you can force it a little bit and yeah. actually make it and 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 turn it into your reality. And it's something, yeah. um, you know, it's something that I talk about on my kids loads is this idea of being kind. Mm. And um, we, we play this gratitude game every dinner time that I've, I've mentioned on this podcast before, so I don't need to mention the, the exact nature of that game again. Um, but sometimes we do add it on a question um, to say, well, what have I done today? What, what kind thing have I done today? Mm. And we go around and we have to think about it. And we, we, we once did that for about three weeks every day. Wow. And, and you know, I think initially it was a bit tricky it's oh, i'm not sure i'm not sure you know it, there was a bit of resistance to it but after a while it's really started to embed mm. in and i think the kids were super excited to tell mummy and daddy yeah. at dinner time what kind thing they did today and so it almost i guess in, in some ways it's sort of playing back to what you were saying at the start which we're going to explore is the power of our minds on our bodies mm. like you can almost practice the kind of person you want to become and you can become it. Absolutely. I mean, it's like no one's ever become an Olympic champion by going to the gym once or running around the block once. It beca- it's a practice. So anything that you do to to get better at is something that you practice. So I think when you practice being kind, that's a that's amazing game that you play with the kids. Have you I, actually, out of interest, have you noticed that as they, you do that, you play that game, that they've become more likely to be kind because yeah. they're looking for something to talk about. 100%. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's very it? hard, to, you know, it's not a scientific study where I can peel out every little component in it, mm. but something has changed. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, for me, you know, I'd like to think I was a kind and compassionate person anyway, but I think being aware of this and actually positively trying to cultivate that on my children is also upskilling me in that area as well. Um, And I notice that a lot in my interactions now on social media um, and that, you know, even when someone, which is very rare these days, but if someone's left a a snarly comment or says something to attack me, um, you know, it doesn't really bother me anymore. And I look at it with mm. kindness and compassion. I think, oh, mm. I wonder what's going on in your day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're probably taking that out on me. That's, you know, in my head. And, and yeah. I really, it's, you know, there's a scientific argument to it. But even if there wasn't, 
it just feels like the right thing to do. It does, yeah. And it feels nicer and you sleep better and you don't get agitated as much. Exactly. Um, I, I think that whole idea that, that the kindness is the opposite of stress is a, it's a really beautiful concept. Mm. Um, what happens when we get angry? Like, I, mean, I know from a stress perspective in terms of the stress hormones, and I have seen um, anger that we hold on to mm. for years and resentment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It is toxic. It yeah. can absolutely raise your blood pressure. And yeah. I've got a few patients of mine who I couldn't get their blood pressure down with medication, with uh, diets, with lifestyle changes in a way that I would always, you know, I would always go for nutrition mm. and lifestyle first until they start to let go of anger yeah. that they were holding on to yeah, yeah. um is that something you're familiar with yeah i mean i i, I think it's better to get it out than in i mean some of these people say oh, you, you shouldn't be angry but you need to get it out there's got to be some way of venting you know i'm not advocating you know you know being unkind to people what i what i mean is if you if you've got pent up and stored up anger, it's better out than it. In fact, I read a, a book recently called The Expressive Writing by a professor called James Pennybaker, and he pioneered a lot of the work on releasing anger and trauma in the, in the body by simply spending 15 or 20 minutes a day writing continuously for that time on four consecutive days yeah. about your emotional trauma or something that happened. And you basically outline what happened, how you felt, how it's affected your life kind of thing just some way just one that's a basic structure to vent and sometimes you can swear and you could anger but but the idea the act of expressing it gradually has an amazing effect because in one of the studies they they found that their immune response to an endotoxin was significantly higher than those who hadn't done the expressive writing so the immune system is becoming more robust okay. as a consequence of expressive writing I mean, that's incredible and uh, for people listening who are not familiar with what an endotoxin is, um, you know, one way of describing it is that inside your gut, um, we've got lots of different bacteria, you know, trillions of bacteria and, and other organisms. And, you know, we very simplistically um, consider them to be good and bad, which is far too simplistic. Um, but essentially, some of them, those those bacteria, are called what we call gram-negative. And on their coat, you've got something called lipopolysaccharide, or LPS. It's a little sugar um, that basically is fine if it stays in your gut. But if it sort of goes through from the gut into your bloodstream, that's where it can be pro-inflammatory. And that's caused all kinds of problems in mm. your brain, and your joints, with your blood sugar. So that's what an endotoxin is. Um, and you know, what you're saying there about how it can alter your immune response is pretty Simply incredible. Simply just by doing expressive writing. Yeah. And they found a lot of other studies. That they even tracked students over the course of a year and they tracked, they had enough students to get a, a statistically significant result and tracked the number of, of visits to the medical centre. And they found that those who did the expressive writing had significantly lower need to visit the medical centre. Yeah, I mean, having just got anger and hurt and, and trauma out of their system. Yeah, you've got to process it in some way. Yeah. And actually, this whole British characteristic of stiff upper lip, you know, keep it inside, I think it is incredibly problematic. Yeah. Because that anger, that energy really has to go somewhere. And we're seeing loads of good evidence now that it gets stored in your body and Absolutely. it can impact 
muscle tightness and all kinds of things that people are trying to stretch out Mm. but actually often it's um unprocessed emotions that i've I've seen in my own life i've seen my own flexibility improve dramatically not by stretching every day but by releasing some emotions that i'd held on to which is simply incredible and 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 you know because if we don't then you you, it's possible to start fitting the cardiovascular starts i mean one one of the I guess one of my favourite titles of a of a study is called Marital Conflict Relations and Coronary Artery Calcification, <laughs> or CAC for short. Uh, and I think you can work, most people can work it with that. It means marital conflict relations and coronary artery calcification. Scientists took 150 married couples, put them in a room one couple at a time, asked them to discuss marital topics for for half an hour, and they they videotaped them, and they scored displays. You know, language and displays of, of kindness and compassion and gentleness and patience. And they also scored anger and hostility and aggression and, and all these kind of things like that. So you've got a whole spectrum from the real far out hostile, aggressive and, and uh, frequent expressions of anger to the other side, which was really people you could say were softer people, uh, gentler, much more compassion and kindness and empathy and touch also. And one of the most amazing symmetries I've ever come across in science, when I say a symmetry, you know, it's symmetrical one thing on the other. The group who had high levels of hostility, aggression and anger expressing, which you might say are hardened people, they had high levels of hardening of the arteries. And the other, the group who were softer people, they had normal, what you would call soft arteries. When you, t- when you uh, controlled in the study for diet and exercise, smoking, drinking, etc., the only difference really was how you behaved in that half an hour. And that was yeah. taken as a proxy for normal behavior. That half an hour slice was taken as a proxy for this is probably how you are a large part of the time. Uh, and so what you can see there is if we don't get out of our system, it can end up having serious negative consequences. Yeah, and I think we all need to find ways to process those feelings that that, that wind us up, anger, uh, frustration, too much stress. Mm. You know, exercise can be a great way of burning it off and letting it go. Even yeah. I say to people, you know, if you don't have time, you know, do one minute of star jumps as hard as you can. You know, mm. you, you literally are burning off and, Absolutely. And, and that stress to a certain degree. Another tip that um, actually a friend of mine gave me, uh, he uses it himself, and I have tried it a couple of times. It's like if someone makes you mad or you get frustrated with something, um, write an email back to them, but don't press send. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't tell you, it is it is incredibly beneficial because as as you've already demonstrated with some of the research you've you've cited, there's something about the act of not just keeping it going around your mind, going around your yeah. body. You you are processing it in some way. You're you're writing it out. You're talking it yeah. out. You and that is processing. Yeah. You know, and it's we shouldn't underestimate mm. how you know, how valuable simple tools like this really are. I know. Because, you know, one of the things I, I've noticed is we think of an, a feeling or an emotion as just something in our minds, but there's actually four components to it. You can't really disentangle an emotion or a feeling from your brain chemistry and body chemistry. You also can't disentangle it from your autonomic nervous system, nor can you disentangle a feeling from your muscles. I mean, you, you don't smile when you're happy because you remember to smile. It's a reflex reaction because the, the zygomaticus major muscle that pulls your lips into a smile is, is connected in some way to the 
say, call them the happy centers of the brain. Similarly, when you feel stressed, you don't remember to tense your jaw and tense your neck. It's a reflex reaction. So what happens is how we feel gets expressed on the muscles, but it goes the other way as well. You know, what you do with your body. One of the best ways I've ever found to reduce feeling momentary feelings of stress is to move my body, get up, rather than sitting down and breathing uh, softly, I'll get up and move, but at an artificially slow pace. And using this fact that emotion isn't just a feeling, it's connected to your, it's part of your, how it shows up in your muscles. If you move your body in an artificially slow way and even talk artificially slowly, obviously if you're at a meeting, you're not going to do that. But in your, on your own, it's almost like your brain hears, I've got this, I must feel quite relaxed. Yeah. And I think that works because, you know, long before language, language is what, 15,000 years old, give or take a wee bit. But long before language, our ancestors communicated through body language and gesture. If they, they want to express themselves, they use their body to, to express. So, so what happened is that it became this really strong relationship between physical expression and how the person feels. So it's really, so, so in that way, what you find is how you feel gets, shows up in your muscles, but how you move your muscles and your body shows up in how you feel. And it's a two-way street. So you can use your body, like exercise movement, for example, to, to help change how you feel in the moment kind of thing. You know, I spoke to a lot of um, therapists recently who, you know, work on people's bodies, whether it's a sports massage mm. therapist um, or whatever kind of therapist, but they will tell you that you can feel or they can feel, particularly when they've been doing it for a period yeah. of years, they said, I can tell what's going on in that person's life. Mm. I can feel how stressed wow. they are from the tone of their muscles and how their body feels. Now, look, that's not my skill set, so I can't. Yeah. But it's really interesting to hear that. Um, yeah. And I guess, David, you know, as you're telling me, you know, the, these stories and this research, you know, I keep thinking back to you, as you say, 20 years ago in the pharmaceutical industry, and, you know, these things that we're talking about, we often say are the softer mm. uh, characteristics of being a human, the softer sides to medicine or whatever. You know, we, we, in some ways, we're being a little bit derogatory about them, like mm. almost as if we feel a need to soften it, like yeah. quite literally, whereas, yeah. you know, it's not quite as... Um, you know, as as robust as, you know, what's the oxygen level of the blood as it pumps out of the heart, mm. you know, or is it? Because is it just a perception? Because you're a scientist by training, you're a scientist by degree, you've got a uh, PhD in organic chemistry, yeah. you know, this is pretty hardcore, yet you are now talking with confidence, with knowledge about the science of kindness, of compassion, of touch, of visualization. You know, what do your former colleagues think of what you're doing now? Do they do they know? Do, are you still in touch with them? I'm in touch with a, a couple of them who are actually greatly supportive. You know, because I, I find even when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, it wasn't that people were so skeptical about things. They just didn't know. Most of the stuff I talk about, they just didn't know. And it's not like, I think we, we often have this perception if someone is educated in a particular way, then they must know everything about yeah. everything. And it's, you know, many, many people are specialized in their own particular field. And I, I learned when I was there that nobody had any idea about the placebo effect, despite the fact we see it in the data, the drug trial data every day, but no one actually knew anything about it. So, 
the colleagues that I'm still in touch with, I think some of them probably think it's a bit kind of woo-woo, but most of them that, I'm, that I've been in touch with over the years are greatly supportive. In fact, they're so fascinated by yeah. it. They're like, Isn't this amazing? I had no idea, for example, that, you know, if you... You mentioned visualization there. If you visualize moving your body, then in some ways your brain processes that as if you're actually doing it. I remember telling one of my former colleagues that. I go, what? Really? So I go out the brain scans and showed him. He's like, whoa, amazing. And it's not that, you know, I think skepticism is sometimes a product of just not knowing. Yeah, it I just agree. doesn't sound possible. It's not that you know, it just doesn't sound because I've never heard anything it's, like it's that. It's not before. within your frame of reference. It's yeah. not around the education model which you've been taught. It, yeah. it never came into that. Exactly. So therefore there probably is a natural skepticism. Yeah. Um, but uh, as you say, the way to change that is to give them the science in a way that they already understand it and go, hey, yeah. look, did you know that? And I, I agree. Most people would be like, oh, that is so interesting. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of research on that, isn't there? About, well, yes, how, how influential our minds are over our bodies. Yeah. But I think I've written one of your blog posts on your website about, um, I think it's a research paper about if you imagined flexing your finger, yeah. right, for 15 minutes a day. Yeah. For what, three months was it? Three months, yeah. Yeah, what happened? Yeah, so so what happened, just just to, to go back a step. Yeah, back up, sure. Yeah, so a professor at Harvard, very famous neurologist called Alvaro Pascal Leon, did a study where he got volunteers to play a sequence of five notes in a piano. So they basically put their hands flat on a table and went plunk, 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 with each with a thumb, index finger, middle finger, ring finger, pinky finger, up and down a scale for two hours on five consecutive days. Now, that, it's not fully two hours, that's tiring. You might do like a minute of plunk, 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 then a couple of minutes rest, a minute, a couple of minutes rest. But for two hours, they had their brain scanned every day. And the region connected to the finger muscles and it underwent significant change. We now call that neuroplasticity. So it massively changed inside by about 30 to 40 times. That's fair enough. It's what you now expect from repetition of movement. But while they were doing that, a separate group of people put their hands flat on the table, closed their eyes and imagined that they were playing the five notes. No movement. It's called kinesthetic imagery. And what that means is you imagine how it feels as if you were really doing it. You're not necessarily seeing it. You could see it if you want. But the key is to imagine the feelings as if you really are moving your finger muscles, but you're not. They had their brain scanned every day. And their same region of their brain had also changed by 30 to 40 times. And if you put the brain scan side by side, you cannot tell the difference between those who played the notes with their fingers, those who played the notes in their mind. So that's given birth to a lot of research, including the little finger research that was, I think that was done at the Cleveland, the Cleveland Institute in the States. And what they did, got volunteers to do 15 extensions and contractions. You know, scientists have to really nail the, tell you exactly. It's like extend the little finger 15 times and contract it, extend it contract 15 times 20 seconds rest 15 times 20 seconds rest 15 times 20 seconds rest like 15 reps at a time for quarter of an hour for three months and they got 53 percent stronger while they were doing that a separate group of people closed their eyes hands flat on the table in kinesthetic imagery they imagined they were doing the 15 extensions and contractions but no movement at all they got 35 percent stronger because this was at the start and the end of the study, they put their finger in a machine and lifted a wee set of weights up to see how strong they were. So by just imagining that you'd moved your finger, they'd got 35% stronger versus 53. Now, someone skeptical, 
when I first talked about this, it wasn't 53% like those moving the finger, but it also wasn't zero. Here is 35% improvement in strength from doing nothing at all other than imagining the feelings as if you really were moving your fingers. Yeah, it's it's just incredible. And then it makes me think of the untapped potential we all have within us. Mm. That, you know, we're, we're looking at you know, a particular component of health, let's say. Mm. Um, you know, one thing I try and do on this podcast is to broaden out that conversation around health to say there are so many different factors that play a role. But what you're saying, David, really is really going to be very profound for a lot of people that our minds, how we visualize things, they can absolutely play a difference in our body. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's incredible to, the idea that visualization works because so, I, I, I wasn't familiar with some of that research, um, but I've always done it myself. Mm. I've always talked about it with my patients. Mm. And I've always said, look, if the top athletes in the world visualize so that they can have peak performance mm. in their chosen activity or their race, well, you kind of want peak performance in your own life. Absolutely. Right? Whatever that means to you. Yeah. So why would you not use that tool? Oh, it's good enough for Tiger Woods and Michael Phelps, but it's not good enough for me. It doesn't yeah. really make any sense, I does know. it? And I know, I know um, that many pro golfers visualize the night before they play, they literally are visualizing being on the tee the exact shot shape they want their ball to make, mm. what their club they're going to play next. They're going to visualize it all the way until it goes in. I remember reading stuff like this a while ago. And when I did get into golf a few years back, um, I would often do that on a Friday night before my rounds. I would actually visualize. And you know what? Wow. It, it makes a difference. And, yeah. and I think this then plays into this whole idea that can the brain tell the difference between vivid imagery and reality. And it, it doesn't seem to. In, in fact, there's there's a number of related studies in, in almost different fields that tell you that. I mean, for example, it's, it's more obvious if you think of stress. Your brain doesn't really know the difference between whether you're in a stressful situation or whether you're thinking about it, anticipating it or remembering it. Similarly, your brain produces, you, you, you still produce the kindness hormone, oxytocin, whether you're being kind, watching it, or even closing your eyes and thinking about it and feeling the same feelings, you don't have to be there. With movement, in fact, you talk all the, all the top sports people, even there's even studies on rehabilitation from stroke. And there's even been a, a meta-analysis recently, gold standard statistical analysis, that looked at all the studies of stroke and they found uh, typically people have had a stroke would go, do six weeks of physiotherapy sessions. But in these studies, and it wasn't people who just had a stroke, one study, one of the patients 14 years ago, and everyone does physiotherapy, but half of them, in addition to the physiotherapy, at the end of their session, they do 30 minutes or so of visualization, where they have to visualize repetitively movements that they are familiar with. So imagine reaching for a, a glass of water, taking a drink, putting it back down. Imagine reaching, drinking repetitively. And in all of the studies, those who do visualization on top of physiotherapy recover much faster and much more in that six-week period than those who just do 
uh, physiotherapy alone. So there's a number of different ways the brain isn't distinguishing. Even eating, there's a study by a professor called Kerry Morwedge found that looking at the way that the brain suppresses appetite, I think it's leptin it produces, isn't it? Yeah. That the brain suppresses appetite when you've eaten a certain amount. And they found that if a person was just imagining eating, so they, they got people to imagine eating lots of sweets or lots of cubes of cheese versus just a little amount of sweets or a little amount of cubes of cheese. And they found that the more the person imagined eating, the more it activated the I'm full part of the brain and their appetite was suppressed. And in the paper, they reported that the difference between real and imaginary, even when it comes to eating, seems to be a bit kind of bloody. So, so that could almost be a strategy for people who struggle with food cravings, I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah. But, you know, certainly it's worth trying. Yeah. Like, what happens if you Im- you've got a craving for that chocolate and you think about it and you imagine it on your tongue and that you're eating it and you imagine it sort of going down your esophagus into your tummy and that warm feeling... Look, I've not tried that with patients as a strategy, but right. why not? Yeah. And what's the downside, right? Well, so the, I, I'm wondering, because I've thought of this, I've thought quite a lot about this, and I'm wondering because the body responds to vivid imagery, and I'm, I'm, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder if imagining eating chocolate will affect blood sugar. I don't know. I, I really yeah. don't know. But wouldn't that be fascinating? It would be fascinating to, tr- to test it. It might be better... Not so much for food cravings, but if you for losing weight, imagine eating your dinner before you eat it, and then imagine eating something healthy, yeah. and at least maybe produce something healthy. But at least it'll suppress your appetite, so you might find yourself eating less. I I I, I don't know the answer, but I've thought about it a little bit. It really is super super interesting. I'm just taking a quick break in the conversation to give a shout out to the sponsors of today's show. Vivo Barefoot are a minimalist footwear company that I am a huge fan of. I myself have been wearing Vivo Barefoot shoes for years, as have my entire family. They make really comfortable minimalist shoes for adults and for children that are perfect to live your entire life in. Many of us at the moment are trying our best to be more active, although of course it is more challenging with the current restrictions on mingling and movements. However, there is plenty you can do in your own house, in your own garden, if you're lucky enough to have one. And as I record this podcast, we are still allowed to go out for walking or other exercise once per day, as long as we keep our distance. I would highly recommend getting a pair of Vivo Barefoot shoes at the moment to assist you with this. I have seen that they can be incredibly beneficial for people with back, hip and knee pain, as well as general mobility. And I've been recommending them for many years to patients and have seen fantastic results. For listeners of my show, they continue to offer a fantastic discount. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off as a one-time code for all of my podcast listeners in the UK, USA, and Australia. And importantly, they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can send them back for a full refund. You can get your 20% off code by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. You know, you mentioned at the start that you came down from Dunblane mm. and you sort of gave a little hint there that... You took up tennis because yeah. everyone around you is playing tennis. Yeah. And so you've taken it up in your 40s and you thought you weren't very good. 
but now you're playing through the leagues. And you mentioned visualization. Yeah. And then I clocked that. I thought, okay, well, what's going on there? So David, yeah. tell us how you're going to be playing at Wimbledon next year. Yeah, well, I, I, might, I might go the year after. <laughs> but now here's the thing. I, I, and take us back to when you started and what happened when you started. Just take us through yeah, that journey. So I, I, I started playing tennis. Indon Blaine, most people in the, in the leagues have been playing since their children, at the very latest since their teenagers. It's very unusual for someone to start playing for the first time in their mid-40s. So I started to really enjoy it because I realised it was quite scientific. The coach would, every Wednesday night there's coaching and the coach would say, this is how you hold the racket. And if you turn it at an angle and, and lift the, the racket from low and move it to high, you you, you put topspin on the ball and it keeps it in the court. And I thought, this is quite scientific. So I thought, oh, this is great fun. I, I was very resistant to playing tennis, but thought, I'm going to do this. So I joined the league systems and for two years, I was officially the second worst tennis player in Dunblade. <laughs> officially. And, and and I say second worst, there's like three or four league seasons per year. The last a couple of months, I think there's four a year we do in the last a couple of months. And at the bottom, there's usually me second bottom for two years. So it was like eight league, eight box league seasons, right at the bottom, second bottom. And the only reason I wasn't bottom is because you get a point for showing up. So it's not like football in the the in the the Premiership where you get three points for a win, one point for a, a draw, nothing for a loss. In Dunblane box leagues, to encourage you to play, you get one point for showing up, four points for a win, etc. So I got I always got six points for playing six matches because it's four leagues of seven players. So anyway, so for two years my average losing margin was six love six one. I hadn't won a game. I hadn't won a single. Uh, set of tennis in two years in the box leagues and I was getting a bit demoralised and I thought you know I've helped to coach people athletes of golfers of of you know from time to time explained how visualisation works how you would apply it to your life etc I thought why don't I try this so it was exactly four weeks to the next box league season and I thought I'm going to science this up I'm going to do it so I decided I would pick the serve and I'd pick them one of the most difficult serves. You know, in all of sports, the tennis serve is the second most complex move in all of sports. Most people think it's, you know, surely not. The, the number one is the pole vault. The reason why it's so complex is because most people think you just hit the ball with a flat racket. But in actual fact, a pro will turn the racket side on and face the opposite way and rotate their body and sweep the racket at an angle over or up through the ball, depending on what kind of serve they want. And there's a serve called the kick serve that's very, very difficult. And I thought, I'm going to visualise. So I decided I'd visualise 10 serves to one side and 10 serves to the other side every day. Within two days of visualisation, couldn't do it. It was so difficult. And and the reason why is because you need to have what's called a mental representation. You need to know what you're imagining. It's okay when I talked about the study with stroke, they they were using, imagining things that they were familiar with, like reaching for a glass of water. In fact, you've never done a tennis serve. You can't visualise it correctly. So I used a little trick of neuroscience called action observation. In many ways, not only can your brain not distinguish between whether you're doing something or imagining it, your brain can't really distinguish much between whether you're doing something, imagining it, or watching someone else doing it, providing you watch repetitively. It's called action observation. It gets a lot of research now in, in sports science. So I obtained a video from Andy of Andy Murray doing serving. I cut it down to about five seconds and I watched it 3,000 times. <laughs> That's how to activate action observation. Not in one go. I printed out a little table in Microsoft Word 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, week one, week two, week three, week four. So I had roughly 30 days to do this. So I watched it 100 times a day for 30 days, just on replay. And that's just conditioning the brain circuits as if you're visualizing. And then after a couple of days, my mental representation was absolutely crystal clear. I could see a professional kick serve crystal clarity in my mind. So then after the second or third day, 10 visualizations of hitting the surf to one side, 10 to the other. Once a week, I went down to the court, hit a few balls. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I won the league. <laughs> I literally went from having never won a set to winning the division. Then I won the next division without dropping a set. So then I was up to the second division and all that. Was, so I went from the fourth to the third to the second. And that's when you're getting into the really much tougher players who've been playing literally since childhood. And I'm not trying to impress anyone, but just to impress upon you that my improvement was in life large part related to the volume of visualization, the fact that I'd used this visualization of a particular shot repetitively. Yeah, I mean, just so incredible. Look, I'm trying to think about the listener who is thinking, okay, I don't want to be a sportsman. I have no interest in tennis. Um, I don't know, but they might be... I don't know, nervous about public speaking mm. and they've got to present someone next yeah. week or in front of their colleagues. Yeah. So... Can we say that if they are scared of public speaking for a week leading up to the event, they can every evening in bed or just, you know, sitting down in a quiet space, visualize walking onto that stage, what it feels like, who is in the audience, what the... I don't know what the smell will be like. I don't know. Is this something exactly. that we can all use in our own lives for whatever we want to achieve? Exactly. In fact, you, you, you hit the nail on the head there because the way to do it, it, the way to apply this to say public speaking, if you have a fear of that, or even if you, if there's someone you feel nervous around, for example, it is you visualize from that moment, let's say you're on the stage, you're getting up from the stage, your name's called. And what you're visualizing You've got to pay attention to, as you're imagining, pay attention to how your shoulders feel, pay attention to your gait, how fast you're walking, pay attention to your facial muscles. And what you're actually doing is you've got to visualize your, the movement of your body because that's what the brain wires in. The brain will wire that repetitive movement of the body as if you're really doing it. So you're not, many people think if you want to visualize public speaking, just they go right to the end and see a standing ovation. But in actual fact, what I'm suggesting is you visualize the, your physical body, the way you would move your body if you feel, I've got this. I've got something I can't wait to tell them. I'm feeling relaxed. I'm feeling confident. And so visualize the entire movement of your body, how you hold and move your body as you get to the stage and then visualize the first opening two or three lines. So you're literally paying attention to your body. Similarly, if you're visualizing you know, let's say someone who makes you feel nervous, maybe it's your boss at work or something, then normally what you would do is your body would tense up and your speech would be affected. So visualize moving up towards your, your boss, your supervisor, and visualize your body being relaxed, your back, your spine being straight, your shoulders relaxed, your head up, visualize your rate of breathing, paying attention to your physical organism, how you hold and move your body. And that's what the brain wires in as if you're really doing it. So if you do that for a week leading up to the presentation or the meeting with the boss, then you'll find your brain will have wired enough that that might go into default and might go into an automatic or certainly it would be easier yeah. to be like that than had you not done the visualization. Yeah, and I think for me, there's probably an added bonus there, which is apart from your brain now being there and by the time you rock up to that event, 
your brain feels like I've been here before. Yeah. I, I think it has another purpose, which is you are proactively doing something to prepare. You're not yeah. stressing and worrying and Absolutely. getting anxious. You're yeah. going, okay, cool. That's going to be nerve wracking, but I can do something each day now that's going to get me stronger for that event. Yeah, it is, it's an amazing feeling because I think many people in society do feel disempowered. Like, you know, like we, we don't know what to do to improve ourselves. And I think just given that little bit, it gives you confidence. It, it boosts your self-esteem and you suddenly feel I'm, I'm in control or, or I am controlling more of this than I ever thought. I am this kind of person that can do that. And it, it does wonders for your identity, your, yeah. your self-esteem. And it's, it's a happiness tool as well, but it gives you more energy, psychological energy. Just, I can do this. Yeah, for sure. I am this person. So David, you've written about the five side effects of kindness, yeah. right? Which I think is a lovely, lovely idea, particularly with someone with a background in the pharmaceutical yeah, I industry. Wanted to, I wanted to turn around side effect. Yeah, because well, a side effect isn't just a negative side effect of a drug. It's anything that happens alongside the thing that you're intending to do. Yeah, I guess, you know, anything we do in life has a consequence. Any drug you take has a consequence mm. that all affects. I guess if it's the effect we want, we call it the therapeutic effect. Yeah, so yeah. We, if it's the effect we don't want, it's, it's a side effect, yeah, yeah. right? So I guess <laughs> it's 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 just how we phrase these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's go into that. I think it's an interesting idea. So what are the five side effects of kindness? So number one, kindness makes you happier. Number two, kindness is good for the heart. Number three, kindness slows aging. Number four, kindness improves relationships. And number five, kindness is contagious. There you go. Five side effects of kindness. I love that. And there's science behind all of that? Absolutely. Behind all of it. In fact, the happiness stuff has been well studied. Typically, what you do is you compare people intentionally doing acts of kindness versus people in a, a control group who are not doing, who are just behaving as normal. And you can track the happiness levels before and after. Uh, and, and you can do it in a number of different ways. But in almost all of those studies, you see net gains in happiness or People who be who do more kindness generally tend to be typically happier. So you, so what you see is kindness actually improves happiness. Another thing it does is it reduces stress at the same time. Uh, that the heart stuff is principally through the action of the kindness hormone through being kind. If it produces a sense of warmth and connection, what I what I did with that chapter is I, I just tracked the different physical effects in the heart and the cardiovascular system, and you know even to do with inflammation and oxidative stress as you practice kindness because of how it makes you feel the the, the slowing aging stuff is interesting because there's a number of processes of aging a number of different ways that aging occurs uh, but one of them is is, is something called oxidative stress or the production yeah. of free radicals and one study I cited when scientists was look, were looking at the rate of, of oxidative stress in skin cells and they found that if you introduce the kindness hormone to the skin cells put under stress, the levels of oxidative stress were substantially less. And there's similar research looking at how the kindness hormone, I, I like to call it the kindness I hormone. I love it. I love it. How it, it, it has quite a substantial body-wide effect on oxidative stress, which is one of the processes of, of aging. It's just one of a number. I mean, kindness reducing the aging process, that is profound. And I, I love the fact that you call it the kindness hormone, uh, oxytocin, which is also called the cuddle hormone or the cuddle chemical the hug drug the hug drug but you know it's in many ways it's it's all kind of pointing 
to the same conclusion, which is when we are around other people who support us and we support them, when we're in our tribe, basically, mm. we feel good. Our body changes, our genetic expression changes. We reduce things like inflammation and oxidative stress and immune dysfunction. These things, which actually, those three things probably drive most chronic diseases mm. at their core, Absolutely. inflammation, oxidative stress, and immune dysfunction. And we're saying that simply being around people we love, uh, who who are empathetic, who are kind, who are compassionate, it has profound impacts on all those things. It's incredible. I mean, it, it really, it really is incredible. In fact, can I, I suggest another aging study? Recently, scientists were tracking a Tibetan Buddhist practice called the loving kindness meditation. Oh yeah, you basically say. You think of people you care about in your life and other people, anyone in your life, and you say things like, in your mind, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be safe, may you be at peace, or something along, there's different versions, but so may you be happy, may you be well, may you be safe, may you be at peace. And it's repetition of that for yourself, loved ones, even difficult people, all life, and it's a repetition. And and it's been known for a while that that generates a system-wide anti-inflammatory effect. It, it, it impacts part of the nervous system that controls something called the inflammatory reflex. Uh, so it basically improves what's called vagal tone, which is like muscle tone, but uh, but talking about a part of your nervous system that impacts on inflammation. And they found that practice caused a reduction in the inflammatory response to stress. But a recent study looked at the rate of biological aging by measuring the length of telomeres. Yeah. You know, so telomeres, you probably explained before, the aglet, little plastic shoelace caps called aglets. And the rate of loss of telomeres is, is proportional to the rate in which the person is aging at that time. And so they compared the control group with a group doing mindfulness meditation with a group doing May you be happy, may you be well, may you be safe, may you be at peace, or a version of the loving kindness meditation. And they found, they measured the, the length of loss of telomere after six weeks of normal, just no practice at all, and that's your baseline. And then they measured mindfulness meditation. They found a little slowing of the loss, but they found no measurable loss at all in that six week period of those who did the loving kindness they yeah. may be happy maybe and and it seems to be that that a possible explanation is an anti-inflammatory effect in the vicinity of the the telomeres which or you might think of as a decluttering of the environment around the yeah. dna which allows it to repair itself better i mean it, it is just incredible and uh it it's you know puts a huge smile on my face hearing things like this because it's it's just a nice thing to hear, right? Yeah. It's it's great when the things that make us feel good as human beings also do good yes. for us, right? That's yeah. that's kind of win-win all rounds. Yeah. Um, you said that kindness is contagious. Yeah. Can you explain? Oh, no, th this is actually what, this is, I, I was going to say this is my favourite, but I've got so many favourites, so I get carried away sometimes. But, but You sound like me. I'm, yeah, I'm the same. Uh, this is why this conversation could keep going on and on, <laughs> unless we start thinking about wrapping it at some point, yeah. but, but fire away. But, so a study uh, between Harvard and Yale, they, they looked at, they did a clever little business game simulation. A, a lot of these studies are done in little simulations, you, you, you create a game uh, and what you're secretly measuring is kindness or cooperative behavior. And, and what they found is if you be kind to someone, 
then because of how that person feels, they call it elevation, that person feels either connected to you or they feel uplifted or they feel grateful. It doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a feeling, that, a changed feeling. That person will likely be kind or kinder to someone else because of how you made them feel. Now, that person now is at one social step from you or one degree of separation, but that person will be kind or kinder to someone else because of how they were made to feel. And that's at two degrees of separation. But then that person will be kind or kinder to someone else at three degrees of separation or three social stops. But that isn't real practice because in reality, given the average amount of interconnectedness, amount of interactions that we have in any one day, you might well probably say that if you be kind to someone, if you, if you were to follow them around, which hopefully you don't do, but <laughs> we don't do. But if you were to follow a person around with a camera, you would probably find that the person you've just helped will be kind or kinder to five people over the course of the rest of the day because of how you made them feel, given the average amount of interconnection. But those five people will be kind or kinder to five more. And now we're at two social steps, 25 people. But each of those five people will be kind or kinder to five further people, which is 125 at three social steps. So you really have this ripple effect, just like you drop a pebble in a pond and the wave goes out in all directions. And a lily pad at the opposite side of the pond goes up and down. And it doesn't know why it's going up and down, but it's going up and down because of the wave. But the same is happening to lily pads at the other side of the pond. The wave goes out in all directions. So what this research shows is that kindness spreads out in all directions. So it's not just one person that you help, but it ripples out in all directions. And if you were to track it that way, you would probably find somewhere, given the average amount of social interaction most people have, you probably find around about 125 people, probably more given a densely populated area, are benefiting from every single time you do even say something nice, you pay a compliment, you help someone, you hold a door for someone. It sounds so, you know, preposterous, so simple. But I, I put it to the listeners that if you ever feel small, if you ever feel that you don't contribute, you don't make a difference, you're doing it every single day, even with the little things that you don't think matter, but they matter to the person that you've helped, who will then spread it out by to three social steps. Yeah. David, I, I mean, I absolutely love things like this. Um, it, it makes me think of in this... In, in this time where many of us feel powerless to make a change and we don't like the way society is heading, it, it reminds me of that phrase, is, I don't know if it's Gandhi, I can't remember who it is, um, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. This is putting it right back in our own court saying, hey, you know what? Be kind to someone each day mm. and that will ripple out. That is something we can all do. And, you know, we say it's for that other person, even if it doesn't make us feel good. But the, the reality is it does make us feel good. Mm. You know, compare the difference when you go into a coffee shop and order your coffee and take it and go on with your day compared to when you actually take it. Uh, say something nice to the person, to the barista. Hey, thanks so much. Really appreciate that. Hey, you made me a great one yesterday. I hope this one's as good. You know, anyway, have a yeah. good day. Whatever it is, it, they've got a smile on their face. Yeah. They they have probably been sort of shocked out of the, maybe the tedium that they were feeling trying to make, you know, 100 coffees in an mm. hour. Uh, but you feel good as well. Yeah. And that does, in your own life, spread to your, to, 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 you know, to your other interactions. But it reminds me a bit of um, what something Andy Ramage said to me. I, I had him on, I think in November, he, mm. was, um, he set up this thing, uh, this company, uh, One Year No Beer. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was a really fun podcast I had with him, actually. Great conversation. And he he was citing some of the research, I think it's from Nicholas Christakis that I'm familiar with, about the parasocial networks and how even something like obesity can spread through social networks. It it goes to three degrees of separation. Exactly. So the point is, everything you're sort of saying, and we've been discussing today, is about community. It's about strong human connections. It's about how you treat those people around you can ripple into so many more people. And I think that's a very inspiring and empowering message for all of us, Mm. Um, no matter where we are in life or what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think it really all comes down to. I've said this many times. It really all comes down to kind interactions. You know, you know, you know. What's the point in not being kind? Yeah. I mean, I, that sounds like a really silly thing to say, but I, I try to see the world that way. I try. I, I don't always succeed. I think yeah. we're, we're only human. We're just trying to do the best we can. But I, I think if we make an effort to be a a kind person, a decent person. It makes you feel better. It makes that person feel better. And it just strengthens social bonds. And then you think, you find that communities just seem to work a little bit better. People tend to work a little bit better. Groups work a little bit better when we're making an effort to be kind. And it diffuses situations, I've realised. You know, if, if you're really kind to someone, it's pretty hard for them to start, you know, getting angry and resentful at you. It's it's It really... We respond to the signals we're getting in the environment around us, right? We respond. Even things are going on physiologically we don't even realise. And so I think the way you treat other people is really gets reflected back on yourself so, so much. David, you say you spend a lot of time teaching these days. Mm. Um, Who do you teach and what do people say at the end of some of your courses? A a very very mixture, uh, mostly general public. uh, Oftentimes, I mean... Professional people, you know, in the NHS will come along to something. I've spoken to NHS a couple of times. I, I do corporate speaking. I talk to different companies. And the what I tend to talk to them about is kindness is the opposite of stress. And yeah. here's why and here's how. Give a little tools. Uh, conferences, workshops. I mean, last night I did a lecture in Glasgow on the mind-body connection and just get, you know, a couple hundred people come along and, and I do like a 90 minutes. So I do quite a lot of that. 90 minutes just giving a talk and try to make it entertaining. People there for 90 minutes, I've got to throw in a few jokes here and there. But so I do a lot of that kind. So it's different kind of audiences, but it's, it's really people who have an interest in learning about the mind-body connection or learning about how kindness is good for your health and can make a difference in the world. Yeah, I guess I can see the value for adults. I can see the value for everyone, frankly. I can also really see value for children. Um, that if we instill this in our kids in society yeah. and they grow up knowing the importance of it, experiencing the importance of it, um, doing it and practicing it regularly, yeah. you just can fast forward that five, 10 years into society, what then yeah. happens to society. I know. Um, and, you know, I, I guess in a couple of weeks, I'm actually giving a talk at my children's school oh, lovely. Um, for Mental Health Week there. And it's going to be around the Feel Better in Five plan because I think that five minutes on your mind, five minutes on your body, five minutes on your heart each day, I think it's a perfect well-being plan for any one of us, but particularly for children. Um, You know, in schools, you know, they want to to introduce well-being into schools, but everything either costs too much or takes too long. You know, everything in that is only takes five minutes and Mm. it's free. 
Um, and I haven't started to think about it yet. I think the talk's in about 10 days, but I need to talk for about half an hour to kids and make it engaging for yes. kids between the age of six and 11. And obviously I won't talk about all kinds of things with them, but I think kindness, uh, there are a couple of kindness practices in the, in, mm. in the plan. Um, but certainly on the back of this conversation as well, I really feel that that might be a nice thing to talk about. Have you spoken about it much with kids? Yeah, I, I actually about a dozen times I've gone into schools, usually kind of local, like, like one of my friends is a teacher in an, auth- an autism specialist uh, unit uh, near Glasgow. And I've been into his school about four times, I think. And then I, I did one of the couple of, one of the local schools in Dunblane where I live. I did another couple of schools, my niece's school. Uh, and but each time I've gone in, I did one at Mental Health Week actually for uh, yeah. Mental Health Week for a, another school, kind of local. Uh, and usually the kids are are about to start or in the, or they're in the middle of a kindness project where the teachers have designed a little thing where they have to learn about kindness. They, they, they have to be kind, they have to understand what kindness is. And so they've got little things up in the board, little pictures that they've drawn about what they've done. And so the whole project is to learn about what kindness is and how do you do it. But notice how it makes you feel and notice how it affects that other person's behaviour. And then depending on the age of the kid, understanding a little bit more about it. And, and so I tend to come in because it's just novel having someone else and I bring in my books and I bring in all the international translations like the, the Japanese version, the Romanian version, the French and the Italian version. Yeah. And and the kids just love having something to to hand, to pass around while I talk about kindness because they all want to know, you'll find us yourself, they want to know about you as well. I mean, the, when I, the first time I did it, open for questions, expecting a question about kindness, what age are you? Next question, what colour is your car? <laughs> you know, but it's just it's just so nice that the kids just want to know about you. They're being kind already because they want to know about you as well as about the, the kindness of the stuff. So I, I, I've really enjoyed doing yeah. it. I mean, these are great tips and I'm already thinking about how to apply them. You know, some of those things, I always think you can learn from everyone you come into in contact with. You can, yeah. There's always a learning there. And even that idea of giving stuff out where they're almost getting excited and wanting to engage with you. I find that interesting. I'll probably think about what I can do about that. Um, Any particular stories you've heard from kids that they, or or stories that you've said that they really resonate with? Yeah. About kindness. Uh, What, what I've found really inspiring is particularly when I went into one of the, the, the autism unit because John, my friend John's been really pushing kindness. I've got me on the wall actually as Dr. Kindness. I love it. Pushing (laughs) kindness. Isn't that a lovely thing to be pushing in society? You're a kindness pusher. Yeah. And it's (laughs) it's really lovely. You know, I I feel part of the furniture when when I've, I've gone in, but every time I go in, when the kids see me come and someone goes and opens the door and then they're, they're telling me what they've done, what they've been doing. And and you hear things like, well, I've held a door. one person really inspired me. Said, "I decided when such and such a boy was was not being very mean, I decided not to push him down." And and that was a girl who who was known for pushing people down. And and it was such a beautiful thing that she stopped for a moment and decided to be kind and said, "But she was totally aware that that's what she did." And I felt myself getting quite moved. Yeah. But what you might think is a simple little, most people wouldn't even notice it. But I know that she pushed 
people in the past and she decided to stop and understood that being kind is not responding in that way and I thought oh, it's just it, was, it really melted me actually did you make a point with kids of teaching them that yes it's a nice thing to do for that other person but it's also good for you yeah because I think that's going to be a message that resonates with the kids absolutely and frankly adults because we're just big kids right that you know if you want don't want to do it because it's good for other people do it because it's good for yourself. I know. And in actual fact, that the, that's a, that's been a big part of all of the kindness projects that I've went into the school to talk during that kindness week, for example. It, it, a big part of it pushed by the, you know, pushed along by the staff is how it makes you feel. The importance of also being kind to yourself. I'm not trying to plug my books in, but Lady Gaga bought one of my books and, and she bought it for all of her staff and it was one of my kindness books. And her mum in her office reached that charity, Born This Way Foundation, reached out to me. And and we had a few conversations. Cynthia, her mum, Cynthia Geminot, and I did a few we interv- couple of wee interviews. And I went over to the US, to New York last year, and they'd invited me to participate in a kindness project. And one of the things Born This Way Foundation does is they go into schools and they help children to understand what kindness is. And so I went over there and what happened is the kids at this school in Long Island had, it was coming up to Christmas time, they'd used some of their own Christmas allowance to buy presents for the children of women staying in a temporary homeless shelter. So these kids wouldn't get presents otherwise. And they, all these kids at the school had used their own allowance. They said to their parents, you know, can can we take some of my allowance and could I buy this fire truck for such as, or this game of something for such and such. And I, when I we arrived at the school, Cynthia and I and some of the team, the whole corridor was filled with hundreds of presents. And then the kids took the presents one at a time and they took them in and they filled an entire yellow school bus with all these presents. And then the presents were driven away. Now, part of the project was now what happens next. The kid, part of the project now was the kids were had to learn and discuss, maybe the write down or the debate, but they have to learn about the consequences of what they've done. The difference that that makes in the lives of these children who maybe wouldn't have got presents, who are the children of women in homeless shelters, but also to notice how did you feel when you did that? And how did you feel when you learned that that makes a difference for them. So the whole, so part of what they do is get involved in these kind of projects that are really taking it right into children's hearts and minds so that they understand not just academically what kindness is, but how does it make you feel and notice that. And I think that it makes a huge difference to the kind of person that you become because you start to notice this feels a lot better than arguing on Twitter, for example. Yeah. I mean, I really like that, particularly that idea of noticing how you feel. Um, so I know I mentioned that gratitude uh, practice earlier on in the episode um, that I didn't go and expand upon. But I, let me just tell you what that what that what that game looks like because the podcast has got a lot of new listeners. A lot of people won't be familiar mm. with it. But essentially, for a number of years now, at our evening dinner in the Chastity households, um, my wife, myself, and my two kids um, sit down. We have dinner and. At some point during dinner, we play this gratitude game where we all have to answer three questions. What have I done today to make somebody else happy? What has somebody else done to make me happy? Mm. And what have I learned today? Wow. Now, what's incredible is that it has changed the dynamic of our meal times. Mm. It's changed the energy of people coming really stressed um, or rushing around. You know, suddenly... The, the, the dynamic just changes. Mm. You start to connect, you start to find out things about 
your your family members and your kids and your wife that you wouldn't otherwise have mm. have learned if it wasn't in that setting. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting is I, you know, my kids are seven and nine now, so I'm guessing we started playing. I don't know, five and three or six and four, something mm. like that. I can't quite remember now. But my kids have started to bring in their own um, questions. So there's now really? five questions in the game. We don't always play all five. Um, it depends how tired and frazzled everyone is, but we definitely do at least three. But one of the questions that I can't remember if it was my son or my daughter uh, who brought in was, I think it was my daughter, actually. She said, so, Daddy, why don't we add another question? So, when you did something to make someone else happy, how did you feel? Right? So, the fourth mm. question is, it's going back to the first question, and, and it came from my kids. Wow. How do you feel? Wow. And it just, just what you said there, yeah. noticing how you feel when you do an act of kindness, that's almost... And I think that's a really important part to sort of lock in that emotion. Lock, lock it in. I like that lock it in. Lock yeah. in that feeling yeah. and just sort of luxuriate in that feeling. Mm. Oh, you know, I felt it made me feel good when I held the door open for my classmate. Mm. You know, whatever it is. And I think that's a that's a really, really important component to anything in life, frankly, but particularly these sort of things. And you know how you know that what you're doing for your children is altering the course of their life in a really positive way. I wish that I'd learned about kindness, the way that what, you, what you're doing and the way that some schools are doing it. I wish our school had, for example, done a kindness project yeah. instead of us learning it later. I think what you're doing now for your kids will shape positively shape the course of their life because it's conditioning, it's locking that feeling in and it's conditioning the quality of person of people that they will become as they get older. And that will have an amazing impact on their health, but also in the quality of the relationships and, and what they end up doing in the world. And, I, you know, I, I, it's such a beautiful thing to teach your kids about being kind, but locking in how it makes you feel. Because yeah. then it becomes, I understand this because I feel it. Yeah, I'm not just something you're saying, well, you, you do this, you do that. I get this because this is how I feel. Yeah. It's not, it's not just something that daddy told me no, to do. I and, feel it. Yeah. I've locked it in. I feel it. I, I feel it here. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. What a teaching for your children. Yeah, well, David, I really appreciate you saying that because um, I think like all parents, I'm just simply trying to do the best I can mm. for them based upon my knowledge and my experience. Well, David, look, I have absolutely loved chatting with you today. Um, you've written... A lot of books. If you were going to direct people listening to this to one book to get going on their David Hamilton journey, uh, what, what do you think is the best starting point for them? Uh, well, possibly the five side effects of kindness. Yeah. Simply because we, you mentioned that you know that it's a good starting point, but also how your mind can heal your body is that one all about the mind body connection. I cover a few different subjects. Yeah. Oh, we'll link to all the books in the show notes yeah. section. I'll also link to some really really good blogs. Um, on David's website that are well worth reading. They're short, they won't take you long. So do check out the show notes uh, page for this episode to, to, uh, to, to sort of have access to those. Um, David, this podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in mm. ourselves, we get more out of our lives. Yeah. And you're very clearly saying that when we're kinder to other people, when we're more compassionate to other people, we and they get more out of their lives. Yeah. And my goal with this podcast is to inspire each and every listener 
to take action, to do something, not just hear all this great information. I go, hey, that's pretty cool. But actually turn that inspiration into action. So I wonder if you could leave my listeners with some of your very top tips, things that they can think about Mm. applying into their own life immediately. How about why I often find people enjoy is the seven day kindness challenge. And you've got to do an act of kindness every day for seven days, but there's three ground rules. The first one is you can't count the same thing twice. So for example, if you start on a Monday and you make someone a breakfast in bed or a cup of tea or something, you can do that again during the week, but it only counts the first time. So you can't count it the other day. So you've got to do seven different things. Another ground rule is at least once going to push yourself a little bit, push yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit. And the number three is at least one of those acts of kindness must be completely anonymous. No one must ever know what you did or if something was done, no one must ever know that it was you that did it. And that takes yourself or the need for recognition out of the equation. So that's the ground rule. So seven day kindness challenge, something different every day, push yourself out of comfort zone at least once and one thing has to be completely anonymous. I I literally love that so much. I think what we'll do is our podcast episodes go out Wednesday 1pm and so we'll put it out and then I think on the Monday after I'll probably launch on my social media channels a seven day kindness challenge along with you and yeah. see if we can put some of that into practice and inspire yeah. lots of people to get going with that yeah. and then that can spread to their networks and their networks. So, Three degrees of separation. Yeah, so let's start yeah. a kindness revolution That'd together. That'd be amazing, yeah. Yeah, awesome. we'll, we'll do that. We'll do that, yep. definitely. Let's do it. Uh, David, look, really, I have so enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Um, if people want to catch up with you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, David R. Hamilton, PhD. <laughs> Probably quite a mouthful <laughs> to remember. Uh, similar, same handle on Facebook as well. Uh, my website is drdavidhamilton.com fantastic we'll link to everything in the show notes section David look uh, looking forward to seeing you at Life Lessons tomorrow Um, thank you so much for joining me and I think the best way to sign this episode off is may you be happy may you be well may you be safe may you have peace fantastic That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better Live More podcast. I hope that conversation provided a little bit of respite and escapism, but also a little bit of positivity in terms of something that we can all do that will really, really make a difference. Being kind is not just good for other people, it's also good for ourselves. Now, if you don't already follow me on social media, now might be a good time to start. On the Monday after this podcast launches, I am going to be doing the seven day kindness challenge with my entire communities on Facebook and Instagram. The handle for that, if you don't already follow me, is at drchatterjee. I'm going to do daily challenges, some live Q&As, and I'm also going to share what amazing kindness challenges are being done by people in the community. Now, if you remember from the conversation I just had with David, kindness is contagious and that one act of kindness can actually impact over 100 people then you can make the case that by doing this challenge with all of my Instagram followers, for example, that has the potential to impact over 16 million people. Not bad, right? In this current crisis, wouldn't that be a phenomenal thing to be involved with? So 
Do let David and I know on social media what you thought of our conversation and let us know whether you are going to get involved or not using the hashtag kindness challenge. So David is on Instagram at David R. Hamilton PhD. He's on Twitter also at Dr. So DR again, Hamilton. Now, if you want to continue your learning experience now that the podcast is over, you can head over to the show notes page drchatterjee.com forward slash 104 and you will see links to all the studies that David mentioned his social media channels links to some amazing blogs that David has written on his website and of course links to his brilliant books so guys as I mentioned beforehand as we all know we are living in some pretty crazy times at the moment and now more than ever before please do consider sharing my podcasts with your community I've been putting out weekly podcasts for over two years now with the goal to empower as many people as possible to be the architects of their own health. Everything I have previously spoken about in the podcast, everything I've written about in my three books, I honestly don't think the advice has ever been more important to apply in our own lives than now. Paying attention to the small things that we do each day in our own lifestyle is not only going to help us support our body's own immune system, it's also going to make us more resilient to all the stresses that we are currently facing and the stresses that we are likely to face in the coming weeks and months. Now, I'm getting asked this question a lot on social media at the moment. What can you guys do to look after yourselves at this time of social distancing and increased isolation? And honestly, the answer I'm giving everyone is the same. The framework that I outlined in my last book, Feel Better in Five, I genuinely believe that it is perfect for the times in which we live. Everything in that book takes only five minutes to do and is free of charge to do as well, something that's really, really important to me. For those of you who don't have the book to refer to, I'm just going to explain to you the framework so you can start applying this into your life. Basically, every day, spend five minutes on your mental health, whether that's with breathing, journaling, creativity, nature, five minutes on your physical health, so that's moving your body, whether it's yoga, in intervals, skipping, dancing, strength, whatever it is, but also five minutes of what I call heart health, which is about connecting with others. That could be phoning a friend each day, FaceTiming a relative, uh, it could be doing an act of kindness, anything you want. So hopefully that frame is going to help you start applying this in your everyday life. If you liked the content in this podcast, uh, do check out episode 58 with Tara Swart, where we learn more about the power of visualization. You might also be interested in episode 45 with Professor Francis McGlone on the importance of human touch. Now, a little reminder for you all, these episodes, including this one, are all available to watch on YouTube. So if you know people who you think would benefit, but actually don't listen to audio podcasts, please do send them over to my YouTube channel where they can also benefit from this information. Many people are stuck at home. They're searching for things to watch on YouTube. So I really hope my back catalogue of podcasts are going to provide real value for people. As always, guys, I do appreciate your support. So leaving a review on a podcast platform makes a massive difference. And of course, sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels, which you already do. A huge thank you to Vedanta Chastity for producing this week's podcast, Richard Hughes for audio engineering. That is it for today. I hope you all stay well. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back shortly with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes is always worth it because when you feel better, 
you live more. I'll see you next time.